All right, everybody, welcome to Back in Tunes, a special mini-sode. I'm your host, Michael, and my guest this week is William Otis, comedian, writer, uh, your new uh, Facebook page, which has uh, a lot of great little posts, is uh, Closing Sentiments. And uh, what, what is your Twitter? Uh, it's uh, at Exit Quotes and uh, at Zen Monster Media. And uh, we're going to be discussing a movie this week. Most of our minisodes are either really, really obscure cartoons that can't fill a whole episode or movies. So this week we're going to be discussing Secret of Nim. And I hate the fact that I have to say this next part. Secret of Nim 2, Timmy to the Rescue. The pain. I'm going to go throw up for a second. Hold on. Um, all right, so uh, regular listeners will know that last summer we did discuss Don Bluth during our Dragon's Lair Space Ace special, and we kind of barely touched upon his movies. So it's kind of nice that we get to go back and revisit probably his greatest animated film, which is also his first. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, he did a short film called Banjo the Woodpile Cat, but Secret of Nim is the first one that he would like completely be in charge, full-fledged production, uh, and while this movie wasn't very successful in theaters, I think it, it made its budget back and just a little bit extra, but it wasn't like a huge hit the way Disney usually had huge hits. And, uh, then it would become kind of a cult hit later on video. And it's nice to know that it keeps going for the next couple of generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's funny. It's his first movie when, uh, people were so behind it. Like, you know how... A bunch of uh, Disney animators came over with him or whatever to, uh, to do it with him and stuff. Huh. Yeah, uh, Disney I... had kind of lost its focus in the 70s. They, they Once Lovebug made so much money, they decided to focus more on live action, silly comedies. And I think they maybe put out, what, uh, Fox and the Hound and The Rescuers? And that was about it during that time period. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Don Bluth worked on The Rescuers. Okay, so that's, that's interesting. Yeah, and uh, for me, this is probably my favorite of his, but I have to say I have a strong affection for Anastasia. I know I'm a guy. I don't care. I really like it. (laughs) I've seen it, but I can't remember it that well. I I think I liked it, though. Do you think it's... When was that? uh, That was 97. Hmm. Okay, yeah. With... uh, Did you notice that a lot of the stuff that we watched when we were kids... We're both uh, 80s kids... And uh, we came up during the era where children's movies were a lot darker than they are now. Fantasy and sword and sorceries, you know, sci-fi were huge. And a lot of these kids' movies kind of took a darker tone. Yeah. uh, I'm I'm a little surprised watching it. I was like, most of the stuff, yeah, later on in my childhood was not anywhere near as dark as this. Uh, This was out when things like uh, Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and... All that stuff was out, and yeah, those were really quite creepy, considering there was probably a lot of six and seven year olds watching. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder how many nightmares came about because you know it's not just the fact that Don Bluth has a very dark tone with the animation. You know, he plays a lot with light, and um, 
but also the story itself it's like whoa someone was doing science experiments on rats and now they're going to kill them and the owl i remember as a kid that owl creeped me out so bad yeah it, it really did um yeah the gigantic fu manchu uh mustache and glowing eyes and all that and then I, he crushes the bug and eats it you're like ah what is going on <laughs> I think I think we're warmed up a little bit though. With uh, I don't know if you saw Ricky Ticky Tavi before this. They used to show it in school all the time, and I remember oh, yeah. the ending. I yeah, the ending is kind of violent, so it kind of warms you up for the darkness of this movie. Oh yeah, and it, I mean throughout also the what the snake like goes around like hissing threats, and it's yeah, that's a really scary little cartoon. You know, you mentioned Dark Crystal earlier, and um, I've been contemplating whether or not this would count. The True, the title is Back in Tunes, but we discuss animation. I've been thinking about adding, like, puppet stuff, you know, cause the, or stop motion, because it still requires someone else to animate it. Do you think that puppets would be uh, added to this? Yeah, that's not a bad idea. It's, it's kind of a similar genre. Yeah. Because I was thinking, like, you know, there's all those marionette stuff, you know, like Team America and then the shows that inspired that movie. And then there's The Muppets and Fraggle Rock and Dark Crystal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be good. One day I'll stop being terrified of Dark Crystal. <laughs> I am nearly 40 and I'm still uncomfortable as hell with that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Um, so with this one... Uh, you know, he didn't make a lot of money off of it, but luckily the next year he got the contract for Dragon's Lair and Space Ace. And I noticed in those first three things that he did, the animation quality is just astounding. It's, in my opinion, it's beyond what Disney was doing. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's really very artistic and, yeah, just like beautiful all over the place. The only problem with uh, Dragon's Lair and Space Ace is there isn't much of a story because it's it's it is a video game. It has more story than a lot of video games at that time did. But if you ever watch the disc and uh, just hit play for the storyline, you're like, oh, this this is six minutes long. This is the same thing over and over. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, how? Um, why is it? Do you think this holds up so much? This movie. Yeah. Um. Boy. I would say a lot of it's just like the atmosphere and the animation style, like we were talking about. Um, and there's a lot of interesting characters, and nobody's really, I want to say, cartoonish. Uh, Jeremy's the most cartoonish. Like, I kept watching him throughout the movie and starting to feel like he was the Jar Jar Binks of. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> huh. she's, she's constantly just trying to make him go away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I never wanted to, I never wanted to poke him in the eye like I do Jar Jar Binks though. It's like, hey Jeremy, you're 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 like that friend that's reliable but at the same time you won't go away when it's time for you to go away. I don't want to murder you though, like Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> yeah. I mean he does try to help and he is helpful a couple times. So he's got he does at least have that going for him. And uh the one thing I thought was interesting is that it has a social message about treating animals properly, you know, not using them for medical, uh, which is still happening. It shocks me that they still are testing on animals. If Robert Rodriguez can make his money off of medical experiments, they have to understand there are people out there going, yeah, go ahead, slap lipstick on my face, spray a little bit of perfume on my skin. Let's see how it reacts. I'll take the money. Stop using it on animals. 
Oh, Robert Rodriguez, he got the money for uh, El Mariachi by doing medical experiments. He got like all that, the $7,000 by taking pills and sleep tests and stuff like that. Yes, I forgot about that. (laughs) Yeah, so really, you could make a big success story out of experiments on yourself instead of animals. There you go. That's the angle that PETA should be playing. (laughs) Yeah. There are people out there who want jobs. Seriously, just uh, if it's just you know what is it? Uh, uh, not Avon, but um, a couple of those big uh, European cosmetic companies are still using animals, which seems ridiculous. Just ask a person, pay them ten bucks an hour, slap some shit on their face, and they're done. Yeah, yeah, much better than like holding rabbits' eyes open and then finding out if it irritates them. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, pretty bad. Uh, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> Um, so with with uh, the success uh, later on video with Secret of Nim, it allowed him to collaborate with Steven Spielberg to do American Tale and Land Before Time, which I know were very important movies to us. I think you had the giant five, if I'm correct. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I was really into that movie. Uh, I'm not sure why now, but I, it was good. It had good music and animation and all that. Yeah, I think yeah. I prefer the second one, the one where he goes west. That one's a lot funnier. Yeah. Don yeah, Bluth. Don Bluth's movies are kind of melancholy. All of them. If you look at all of them, uh, American Tale has a deep sadness riding through all of it. There's a tragedy going through Land Before Time, but it's after that when, like, a lot of his movies, and I haven't seen most of them to be fair, because uh, no one really, really released them. The next handful of movies were pretty like re- low budget. No one went and saw them, and I don't think they really had much subtext. But it wasn't until. Um, Anastasia, where he had his big comeback and Titan AE. And then, since he was busy with Fox, MGM, behind his back, decided to greenlight Secret of Nim 2. <sighs> you told me about it, and I was like, Yeah, I'm kind of glad I can't find it. Oh, God. Then you sent it to him, like, I want to murder myself. Take my eyes out. <laughs> yeah, I saw on the trivia page that uh, they basically did it without him. Well, their their statement was they did it without him because he was doing Anastasia. Um, but yeah, that was kind of a dirty thing to do, and, and I'm sure he, he was not happy when he saw what the piece of crap that came out of that. Yeah, it's. It, I'm going to save everybody the trouble if they haven't seen it. Um, you know the cheap 90s Canadian animation that you would find sometimes syndicated on the afternoon or you would find on PBS? You know, like when they did Never Ending Story, the animated series, you could tell it was done on a shoestring budget. It is the flattest, dullest. There is no plane with light whatsoever. It is so flat. I. It looks like it was animated by college students. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. In Yugoslavia. <laughs> uh-huh. And I was looking at some of the cast. I can't believe that they convinced Eric Idle, uh, Ralph Macchio, William H. Macy. Um, of course, Dom DeLuise comes oh, yeah. back as Jeremy, but... Um, it had to have been solely on the fact that, like, well, we haven't started production yet. You haven't read the script yet, but you love Secret of Nim. How would you like to sign up for Secret of Nim too? And they're like, oh, that sounds good. It's got to be at least half as good as the first one. Not like having no clue whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, because yes, that is an amazing cast. That is probably the most interesting cast I've ever seen on a like truly horrible movie. I mean, yeah, there's legends in there. Uh, Harvey Corman, uh, Eric Idle. Yeah, I. 
I looked at the budget and I was like, oh, this has to be like, I don't know, a million dollars, maybe a million and a half. Because it looks just uh, the budget of three very low budget TV shows put together. So I'm thinking one and a half million. This movie is not even technically a movie. If you take out the credits, it is probably less than an hour. Yeah, I found a version on YouTube. Uh, I'm not sure it has the credits, but it's about 55 minutes. <laughs> and it's 50 minutes too long. It should have been just an, uh, like, you know how on uh, animated movies now they have the little short at the beginning to entertain you, like warm you up, like a stand-up comic, you know? Oh, the opening act. This is what it should have been at best. And for some reason, it's still going. You're like, oh, God. <sighs> and, um... I don't even know what the story is about. I, Timmy, the little mouse, is trying to save some more rats from them because they're going to kill more rats from them because they didn't learn the first time. And, uh, um, yep, that's it. It's so bright and shiny and dull, and they're just like, it's got to appeal to kids. Who cares about the adults? They're not going to see it anyway. Bullshit. A lot of us were fans of the original, and we wanted to see the sequel. And uh, it's like being just stabbed in the back by an old friend. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I just could not believe the uh, the big twist they decided to do, where his brother is like the you know the emperor from Star Wars kind of character <laughs> at the end of it. Oh I boy! Mean, yeah, it, it, that just that just absolutely blew my mind. That just said to me they did not really want to write a story. They just they just threw something together. Yeah. It was like, uh, well, MGM, I think, was on the ropes at this time. They were losing a lot of money. Uh, they had already filed for bankruptcy, I think, a couple times. And uh, they're probably desperately like looking around. This is when like Showgirls 2 was coming out and Roadhouse 2. They're looking for anything they could exploit on video. And they're like, well, we got the rights for uh, Secret and M, people like that. Well, let's fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> mm, okay, so yeah, it was a clear money grab off the uh, popularity of yeah um so i say just watch the first one the original is a masterpiece of animation still holds up very well to this day they say they're going to do a live action cgi remake but i'm not sure i understand why are they going to have more humans because the humans are barely even uh, a footnote in the original movie mm, yeah oh no that doesn't make a lot of sense at all uh, everybody wants to do that now the what was it did you watch uh underdog they were going to redo it though oh well uh, the cartoon of course is all about like uh, a dog parody of superman and then they did a live action movie and the story is completely different than the cartoon and you're like what was the point i don't understand why is jim belushi in this you know it's that kind of thing it's like they have to add humans now in order for parents to watch it just make it an animated movie damn it just keep it if you're going to remake it just put it in the cgi you know uh 3d animation um but i i do you miss hand-drawn uh, absolutely. I have no idea why they keep doing this with things that I love from my childhood. Um, it's Smurfs, Garfield, uh, even Transformers. I just, uh, Transformers, uh, the cartoon and the movie, which was, I guess, a horrible movie, but I couldn't understand that. As, like, a seven-year-old, I thought it was incredible. I still think it's great. I love that movie. (laughs) Yeah, I, I was blown away by planet is a transformer oh my god Um, unicron okay hold on you know what this reminds me it's the 30th anniversary of that movie this should be our next episode we should do that we should discuss transformers the movie Mm, yes that that would be fun uh 
Oh, but go ahead. So what were you saying about they're ruining all the stuff in your childhood? Um, yeah, I just I want to see it in its original form. So I feel like when they bring these things back and do the live action movies and stuff, it's not for me. It's not for the people who loved it when they, when they were a kid. I think they're trying to make it hipper to current children mm. or something. That I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I, I still can't tell what's going on in a single fight. Every Transformer movies I watch, I'm like, well, A, it shouldn't be three hours. And two, um, I, who's fighting who? I can't tell at all. I mean, the special effects are amazing, but I have the foggiest clue what's going on. But I will say I like the G.I. Joe movies. They're not perfect, mm-hmm. but they're getting in the right direction. I'm, I keep waiting for a third one. They're taking forever. You know, I... I think I got so disillusioned from other similar movies. I don't think I've seen any of the G.I. Joes. The first I, one... I watch them, I guess. Yeah, the first one has rough effects. Uh, Steven Summers is always a guy who goes overboard with special effects. He doesn't look for quality. He looks for quantity. So you find yourself going, well, that was a good special effects sequence, but that one sucked. And... Um, the second one is scaled back quite a bit. They focus more on the military aspect instead of the fantasy aspect, and it works out better. But I didn't have as much fun watching the second one. It seemed a little too dour. Uh, okay. So that's that's dour, like uh, depressing, sad. Well, something very bad happens at the very beginning of part two that changes everything you know about the franchise, and um, it's more about revenge. Then and that, it's kind of like not what GI Joe was about, so it's a little it throws you off a bit because like I didn't know they were so like you know, <laughs> you know vigilante de- death wish style going on. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, hey, by the way, I, I do have a couple notes about Secret of Nim. Go ahead. That uh, I, I just uh, thought maybe I'd mention a couple of them. One of the things that uh, I just want to mention that really blew my mind was um, that. Uh, the shrew tells uh, Mrs. Brisby to go see the owl. And do you notice later that, like, everybody else in the entire story is completely shocked and is like, he killed everything. Uh, nobody's ever seen him and come back alive. Oh, right. So I kind of wonder, yeah, I kind of wonder if the shrew was trying to kill Mrs. Brisby. Huh. <laughs> By there to see this thing that kills everything. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, um, I remember hearing that, but I guess it didn't register. <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of stuck in my mind there. The funny thing is, this uh, uh, this wasn't that big budget, but I think it's because he filmed it, um, well, not filmed it, but made it in Ireland, um, kind of outside the Union rules, and uh, it probably would have cost double if he had made it in America, which is nice for Ireland, though. They finally created a, a, an animation community in that country. So that's okay. So that's part of why it was so cheap. Yeah, because I was reading that. I mean, a lot of the animation techniques they used were like pretty amazing, uh, and some of them were even better than Disney. And yet, yeah, it cost half as much. Okay. So just not doing it in the U.S. with whatever systems we have here is what kind of saved them a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, you see that now. Films are made over in like Bulgaria or up in Vancouver because union rules are different, and we the pay is completely different. I apologize. I interrupted your notes. Oh, I just I just had a couple more. Um, another thing that really shocked me was how Nicodemus was uh, looking into into his uh, his I don't know his Stargate thing. Yeah. <laughs> <That was kind laughs> crazy. That, yeah, these 
rats are so smart they built their own Stargate. But anyway. Oh, does that mean I can go? Was, does that mean I can go into some other alternate universe where I can erase the existence <laughs> of Part Two? <laughs> <laughs> that that is what he should have done with that. Yes. <laughs> um, but anyway, so he knows that uh, Mrs. Brisby is on on her way to him, and yet when she gets there, this this Nimgar just straight up tries to axe murder. <laughs> I don't know who you are. Die. Yeah, he just he, he tries to kill this, this small, kind little thing uh, who's done nothing other than walk, you know, approach. And, you know, maybe Nicodemus should have, like, maybe just sent out someone to bring her in rather than very nearly get her killed. I don't know. Do you wonder if that's happened before? Like, people get lost and, like, excuse me, do you know where the local star, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it makes you wonder if, like, a really high-tech, high-security corporation just, people walk into the wrong uh, research area and yeah just just get shot and thrown somewhere hopefully not (laughs) it could have happened yeah Hmm. um let's see i guess that's about it it did strike me as really weird that the the rats were so incredibly concerned about stealing the electricity uh like i understand i guess the morals but i mean they're mice they're they're not part of our society. They're not part of our economy. You know, they don't have jobs. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think they have any other option, but yeah. I don't I even think, think gonna... if they had asked permission, I don't even think the cable, the, the company could have even build them properly. It's like, what is your address again? Oh, we don't have any hookups there. Um, eh, you're good. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you know what their plan was? I never caught that. Like, were they going to do solar energy or I don't know. I uh, I I feel like an idiot because I didn't understand. I, I feel like I should have watched it again, but uh, time is short with me. <laughs> but, they, but they just kept talking about this plan, this plan, this plan, and then I don't think they ever actually explained it. Oh, so. Who knows? Maybe they're gonna. Maybe that can be explained in Secret of Nim Three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe they'll just turn everything around. And uh, no, what they probably do is they probably do Pixar this time. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I was looking at the home video release of this, and uh, of course, not a lot of people remember before DVDs were on the shelf, brand new for like fifteen bucks. VHS tapes were almost impossible to buy. It wasn't until I think ET when it was like twenty five bucks, and people were like, "Holy crap! It's it's out now, and I can buy it now." It cost eighty bucks for a VHS copy of this. And 25,000 people bought it. Not stores. People bought it at 80 bucks a copy. Oh, wow. That's insane. That tells you the love for the movie. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, is it, and was this like a, I don't know, what I, how am I trying to say this? Was this the first? Was this like the first big movie that people were willing to pay that kind of money for? I think it was Star Wars was the first one where people were like, I'll buy a home version. But it was very early on in VHS's um, non-exclusive to video rental stores. Like, you could you, ha- you would have a catalog and pay for them at that price. And, you know, it depended on how successful the movie was. There were some lower-level companies that only charged, like, 50 bucks. Then you get people, like, towards the end, they were charging $100 for VHS. It seemed like it was being done on purpose because they wanted to move on to DVD because it was cheaper to produce. It's like, well, yeah, make it $109, and people will look at that and go, uh, no, I'm going to go ahead and go get a DVD player. <laughs> wow. Uh, but, yeah, I, I wonder if a lot of that was uh, just how popular the book was, like, especially with children. Um, you know, a lot of us read it in school and, and all that kind of thing. 
Yeah, that's what bugs me about the sequel is uh, that there is a sequel to the book that they completely ignored. Really? Yeah, I know there's there's two sequels. Yeah, they they clearly must have ignored it. Um, did you ever read the original book? I, I I have no memory of it if I did. Okay, I did. Uh, but it, yeah, it was like it was one of the first books that really made an impression on me because I wasn't very old. I was probably like eight, seven or eight, and uh, yeah, it was a really kind of interesting, uh, kind of creepy book. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it really really stuck with me. Um. Uh, the one other thing I'll say real quick is one other thing that it was released on was the Philips CDI video disc in 1994. And I had, I had completely forgotten about that until I read that. Do you remember that terrible system that was like a, like a spinoff of the Nintendo, uh, the Super Nintendo? Yes, I do. I, I think I had one for a little bit and it was pretty much everything for it was terrible. Ugh. Um, yeah, they must have thought that was a real cool hit to put it out on that thing. That's yeah, it was supposed to be, for nobody that remembers this whatsoever, a complete and absolute commercial failure. Um, I shit you not, when Phillips lost $1 billion on this project. Billion! And it was supposed to be a connection of taking a home computer and a gaming system plus a home video player. So it would have movies on CD... And then it would link up to the internet so you could, like, you know, do Windows Office and do very early internet. But it would also play video games that were licensed from Nintendo. Nintendo had control over the content. And apparently their quality control team took a vacation while they did their games because that Legend of Zelda animated game is the worst piece of shit I've ever played. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much all their games were really terrible. It was either uh, stuff that aimed way too high... And then couldn't deliver. Like, it would be like, oh, you have video, like, full-blown video for 10 seconds, and then horrible gameplay. (laughs) Or, yeah, or it was just, like, little bitty crappy companies that probably used to do shareware, and they were like, here's our chance. They don't seem to give a crap. We'll put out a game for CDI. Yeah, and they didn't have... They didn't have a normal game controller. If you look at it online, um, it looks like one of those controls for a massage chair. You just hold it in one palm and you move the the circle around. It has little pads on the side. It did not have a normal game pad. You'd use a mouse and that at the same time, and it's so counterintuitive and confusing, frankly. I yeah, I don't remember that, but I, I do remember I could not play games very well with it. That was, <laughs> that was probably the issue. Oh, the '90s! So many peripherals and terrible game systems and. Uh. <laughs> All right, so anything else you want to say about, um, I almost said Land Before Time, Secret of Nim? <laughs> uh, I, I guess not a whole lot. It, I mean, it was a great movie. Um, the second one is one of the worst things I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> by the way, did you notice that um, in the movie they even, like, didn't even animate stuff if they didn't have to? Anytime they oh, just, yeah. like, pan around, pan around a scene instead of actually, you know, animating it? Yeah, they would... The, the, well, the whole first five minutes is mostly just frozen CGI or, like, computer-generated images. Like, just, like, the logo. You can tell immediately that you're doomed. Because the animation quality of this movie is almost the same as the Philips CDI quality, which was ten years before. It is pathetic. You keep expecting someone to, be like, point and click. That's how bad it is. I was like, is this an old LucasArts game? What is this? Yeah. 
But yes, uh, anyone listening, you do not have to see that movie. No reason unless you just like I don't know want to get drunk and laugh at something. Yes, or pur- if you're say uh, you're just like you hate yourself and you want to hurt yourself inside. <laughs> I need pain. Yes. Ab- <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So that brings us to the end of this episode, and I think we're going to come back with Transformers soon, uh, the movie, that is. Um, Check us out on Facebook under Back in Tunes. You can find all of our episodes there. And, uh, William, thank you for joining me for this episode. All right. Thank you. It was fun. And everybody, be excellent to each other. Good night. Everybody, it's Comics on Infinite Earths. I'm your host, Michael, and Andrew, my co-host from Video Nights over here for a special episode. We're going to talk about some works of Mike Allred. Specifically, yes. Red Rocket 7 uh, and Superman, Madman, Hullabaloo. Yeah. And and to tie in with Red Rocket 7, uh, the little short... They say it's a short film, but it's an actual feature-length film oh, called is, Astro-esque. Yeah. And it feels like it's two feature-length films. It is a little long. Yeah, okay. very Very low budget. I, I Shot in Eugene. I, I knew I, it looked familiar. Drive me nuts. It looked familiar. Yeah. Uh, so, Allred lives in Portland. No. Eugene. He lives yeah. in Eugene, hangs out in Portland sometimes. Hangs out in Texas, apparently, both. too. Does he? Yeah, he's good friends with Robert Rodriguez, and I guess he hangs out there a lot. Makes sense. That seems, uh, his comics seem well, like no, an Austin think... kind of comic. Like, they would appeal to people living in Austin. Well, Austin is like the... Portland of Texas type yeah. of thing. It really is. It's it's like that. It has that same feel, except it's spread out. Um, but Robert Rodriguez wrote a foreword for Red Rocket 7. And at the time, he had optioned a Madman adaptation from Mike Allred. But yeah. that's never come to fruition, and it's always bummed me out, because that's really fun. Yeah, I went back Bad and read the, uh, I think it's called Bits and Pieces or something like that. It's a collection of all his early stories that he did um, before he was locked down. Was he, He's mostly locked down with Dark Horse now, right? But he did, and, and Marvel. Well, but he did he, stuff for like what, Fantasy Well, he started with Tundra. Tundra, okay. He started with Tundra. And Tundra was uh, black and white or three-tone, you know, black, white, gray. Um, uh, version of Madman, and it wasn't the one that hit Dark Horse. And eventually hit image with the atomics and stuff. Uh huh. But oh god, I forgot the atomics. Is that even good? Have you read that? Yeah. The, um, it's it's a it's a superhero team that's like um, from the Madman universe with Madman hanging out with them. So it's the same stuff, uh, which is very beatnicky, very um, it's sort of that you know the, the, you. Called it cowpunk at one point, uh-huh. but it's at, it's future. As, uh, what is it called? Futurism, uh, retro futurism. Right. That's what it's called. So, it, Madman's very retro futuristic, and Red Rocket Seven isn't just retro futuristic, which it is. All the sci-fi elements are retro futuristic, but the story is well, the Forrest Gump of comic books in rock and roll. Right. Well, someone said, uh, what's the one, is Z-Lig, the Woody Allen movie where it has kind of the same elements as Forrest Gump? Where guys always in these famous moments hmm. from movies? Oh, uh, no, I didn't know. Yeah, I've never seen it. Hmm. Neither have I. No, so, so the premise is um, some space guys. 
<laughs> some space guy flees uh, from like some marauding government. It's weird. I don't really get the bad guys. Did you follow the bad guys? Well, it jumps around a little bit. Yeah, it just seems like they're super oppressive and they want to destroy him because he's supposed to be the leader of their world and they don't want that, so they decide to destroy him and all of his clones, so they follow them to Earth. To well, eliminate. the clones, the clones are de- the clones happen because he escapes, and he gets mortally or not mortally wounded because he's immortal. He escapes, and his robot says, uh, like, takes it upon himself to clone him, and give each clone seven of them attributes that he had, but like turn them up to eleven. Right. Each one has a very These different are, aspect. Yeah. These are ginger-haired robots, uh, I mean clones, that uh, each have a number on their forehead. Which, actually, this this whole thing, rereading it after years of not reading it, it's really uh, kind of silly. Um, like, eye-rolling silly. But there are some philosophical ideas that he tackles. Like, Michael, you're a clone of, of the original Michael. So you're Michael too. Are you yourself? Do you have your own identity? Right. It tackles those ideas. Well, are you? I don't are know. You yourself? If they clone me, why, why, would they, why would they clone any of me? That's a terrible idea. I, <laughs> the first one was a, a botched experiment. <laughs> oh come on. <laughs> uh, well, well, that's the the premise. At least with Red Rocket Seven, the character of Seven. Um, he's the one that's struggling a lot with his identity. But he's the one that's the rock and roll guy. So, if you're following his storyline, because there's a few storylines of the different rockets or different reds, or whatever you call them, uh, you follow his story, and he's he's the guy that taught Elvis how to shake his hips. <laughs> <laughs> he's the guy that uh, hung out with uh, Chuck Berry back in the day, and and the Beatles. He hung out with the Rolling Stones and but when Brian Jones was around and all this stuff. Um, Mike Allred loves this old era of rock and roll that he was born just too late for. Right. You know, he wasn't a teenage he wasn't a teenager to experience it. So if you grew up in the see, he's a little bit older than me. Um, so he's got it hard. I didn't get that. I can't stand stuff from the 70s pretty much almost anything. I don't know. I, um, the problem, my problem with the 70s music is that it's overplayed. My God, I get it already. The classic rock. Could you move on? Now we do seem to be... Like, yes, like, well, I, now we've moved on, right? Right, we're getting 80s and new waves starting to even move out. So now we're like classic rock. We get Guns N' Roses and uh, Nirvana. I'm like, oh... Oh god! And I'm they're, old. they're getting they're putting Weezer on there, right? Which 1994 it makes sense, yes. Twenty five like, years to me, yeah. Weezer oh. 1994 is still fresh sounding. That just first album is still fresh sounding. Uh, and then you get confronted with the classic rock aspect of it, and you're like, what? What? This band's been around forever, forever now? <laughs> oh no! Just like the Rolling Stones. Oh no! <laughs> you know, um, but what did you think? Because you'd never dug into any. Not Mike really. I, stuff, I, I right? had 
read a little bit of, God, I want to say that he wrote uh, X-Force towards the end of its run, and then it became Ecstatics, and I read one or the other, and at the time, when it came out, I wasn't mature enough to get it. And I believe, didn't we discuss uh, G-Men from Hell, and you sent me like a... Yeah, like, we watched, we talked about the movie. G-Man yeah, and I think I read one Only Madman. Yeah. That's the only Madman's anything that was ever made into a movie. It was G-Men from Hell. Yeah, and, so I read a uh, short story of theirs, and... Um, I caught the Silver Surfer run that he's been doing in May, I think, and I got a couple books of that, and I was pretty impressed. It was the best run of Silver Surfer since probably the early 90s when they had the whole Infinity Gauntlet storyline, but it was a different beast, totally different beast. This is more about the people, yeah. not so much the... the... His, his stuff deals with relationships. Every story right. that he's ever done that I've ever seen deals with relationships. Yeah, and the Silver Surfer... At least Surfer, every story that... He gives him a Back human partner yeah. that he's responsible for. She teaches him how to be uh, a human, and where he gives her something more exciting to live for if she's bored out of her mind. Um, huh. And then, of course, like he has a huge imagination for like trippy adventures, stuff that no one else is really doing. I think that's why he's kind of in demand by Marvel is because he likes to take some series that aren't very popular anymore and, and infuse it with some new life. I don't think he's ever gone over to DC. Now, he's worked with DC characters in a crossover. No, he has. He's worked on... Um, he had a thing called The Geek. is from Vertigo. Oh, you mean the so like, old brother Geek from the 70s? He's done stuff Vertigo. Yeah, he's done stuff for Vertigo, but I don't think he's done anything straight up in DC. But... He's doing something else for them right now. I saw him on the cover for something. Oh, oh, he's been doing the artwork for Batman 66. I forgot. He's been doing that. Oh, right. Not, no, that's no actually stories. the thing that he does for DC. He has done the stories. The beginning. Oh, the has he? Okay. I didn't like it. it. I'm not he, a huge he fan did of 66. Like first, so I shouldn't... Oh, uh, not my thing. Wait, regular 66 TV show you're not a fan of? No, I picked up the book and I was... You're okay. an adult. You're an adult. You should get it now. I get it, but I'm not into it. Like, I still just, like, I loved it as a kid. I adored it. I watched it even past the Tim Burton run. But I watch it now, and I can watch two episodes, and I'm good. I'm good for a long time. That's fine. That's fine. But you get that it's not for kids now. No, no, no. You get that it's satire, and this is all dumb fun. And it's also the mod seven, mod 60s, mm-hmm. 66. Has he ever done it? So this is why they actually got... Mike Allred because right. he's totally a, a mod dude. Has he done he, a 60s spy uh, homage? Because it seems like that might be his thing. Like a, He should take Danger Diabolic and maybe turn it into a comic book. Oh. That would be interesting. Especially when you look at Red Rocket 7, how the um, clones are dressed. And actually the Celestials, whatever they're called. The Astro-esque is this event that's supposed to happen that would bring all of the refugees from the planet that the marauding uh, ethereals I don't know what they're called I forget those guys the bad the bad guys run people off their planets or kill them and then they just take them so they're kind of like a an empire or Galactus if Galactus was a bunch of bad guys instead mm-hmm. of one head and one planet eating body so they Run them off, and the Astro-esque is the moment where Red Rocket 7 plays the Lost Chord, because he's a rock and roller. It's a musical tone, mm-hmm. so he just 
figures it out and yeah. plays the chord. And all the refugees show up on the sand dune. It's where is it? It's in it's in Oregon. It's uh, Pacific Rockaway North Beach, West. I thought maybe. I can't remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a big sand dune, and they all come walking over, which is also a scene that's in the movie uh, Astro esque, which is very loosely connected to any of this. Um, he. All those guys are dressed like Danger Diabolic, or Diabolic, as you call it. Right. Except they have goggles on. You know, I think he would do a good job so, with yeah, Fantastic Four. If you think about the goofiness in some of the Fantastic Four stories, I think he would work well with that. I believe he did a Spider-Man Fantastic Four thing. At least he did a cover. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not an expert on Mike Allward, but I was in the Madman for a very long time, which got me into this um, kind of okay, eye-rollingly fanboy gusharama about music uh-huh. <laughs> that Red Rocket 7 is. He fanboys out so much, and you know there is so much of the writing that he thinks is just so dang clever putting his little character all over the place, showing up in rock and roll history. And it's just too much of a fan project, I think. I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I think it changed my perception of indie comics. I mean, I really love this, but I also, in reflection, realized, oh, a lot of it's because um, it's a nostalgia fest. There's still a great story here, but it, the, first, oh, yeah. the first half of the book really does focus too much on the, like you said, Forrest Gumpian trip through music history. Yes, it's just way heavy on that. And once the sci-fi story starts going, it's pretty good. Um, but then you get to the modern time. At the time, it was 1997 when this came out. In 97, the And he starts working in his friend's Dandy Warhols. Actually, they're characters in the story at one point. And all these uh, Eugene Portland um, musicians show up in speaking roles. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, yeah, like I actually see, like, like this picture right here, the last issue where the Dandy go, hey, look, it's the Dandy Warhols. It says Burnside. I see Burnside right there, and I've been to this record shop. But yeah. I, I feel like it was a different name. Yeah, though. so I I think uh, some of those people who are, are working in the comic, who are working in the shop, are people who actually worked at the shop. Yeah. Uh, so he drew them. So it's cute in that way. Got a lot of cute moments like that. Um, but. I just think he fan gushes too, too much, especially the first half, as you said. Um, so, uh, when this but came have out, you had like, a chance to listen to the music? Yeah, just a couple songs. I totally forgot until right before we recorded. Um, let me ask you just real quick. Was this a really big book at one point? Like almost digest, not digestized. What do you call that? Um, Marvel no, it was a 12-inch. It, it was a record. Uh, no, not a, not, what's, what's the one just under 12-inch? It's not 7-inch. There's a middle range. I don't know. Um, but I feel like I thought like I saw this was huge, massive back in '98 when yeah. I started buying comics again. But maybe I'm wrong. No, you weren't wrong. That was big. Okay. The one that you got is the seven-inch reproduction. Right. He actually, because I mine fell apart, and I lamented that to him, and he told me, "Well, there's a little one." And that's the one that you got. Yeah, I wish I had the weekend off when he was 
down there in Eugene. I don't live that very far away, so I'm sure I'll be able to see him again, but I wanted to go uh, talk to him about this uh, a couple weeks ago when he was at this Halloween festival down in Eugene, but had to work. Had to work? Yep. Slaving away. Hey, Michael, off mic, um, I'm making sure. Are you recording this? So, now, um, I really liked uh, the... The, the end part of as the, the uh, Red Rocket 7 thing. That was pretty fun and fast and it was furious but then it kind of set up at the very end to tie it in a bow really, really quickly mm-hmm. with the Astro-esque happening. Um, I thought that was maybe a bit too abrupt. However, that whole length of the first half is just way too much. I think. It is a little um, self-indulgent. It, yeah. I mean, well, it's I don't want to speak ill of him because he's a genuinely nice person. Um, self-indulgent, so like, yeah, it's a vanity project, I guess. Yeah, a lot well, of the no, ni- I, I gotta tell you though, a lot of those independent '90s comics, man, very self-indulgent. It wasn't until recently, I think, uh, that that started to back off. But you still, you're gonna run into a lot of vanity projects, no matter where you go. And if you have the money and time, which he had the heat off of Madman, that he could do this. Um, it just sometimes it takes self-editing, and that that is a problem. I, but I, I, like I said, I'm a nerd. I loved every second of it, but it does distract from the real story. Yeah. So I've always thought, um, and most, I think there's about most artists who actually draw people uh, that they tend to draw themselves most in everything. If they draw a guy and they're a guy, they tend to draw attributes that they see all the time of themselves. And this is what happened in Madman. And Red Rocket 7, in particular Red Rocket 7, because he is the basis. Mike Allred, when he had long hair, is the basis for the original. Okay. Because, well, not just the drawing that you see, but he did the movie Astro-esque. Right. In which he plays the original. And there is no, there are no clones except for at the very end. They show up, but they're all wearing the diabolic outfit, so you can't see their faces. Uh, but that is one kind of doesn't do anything of a movie. <laughs> what do you think? I don't know. That was a interesting experiment of a movie. I'm still not sure why he wanted to do it. Like, what was he really trying to say with it that he couldn't say with the comic? Well, so he had he talks with Robert Rodriguez, and Robert Rodriguez was like, "Yeah, make a movie. You, you, if you got the means to do it, do it." because of mariachi right. uh, was such a thing for $5,000 to make such a great film. And then you have that, uh, that encouragement from Robert Rodriguez about making a movie, and he's like, yeah, I can, but what script is he following? It just doesn't really do anything. The original shows up in the late 90s in Portland or Eugene Eugene you said right uh-huh. and he meets a guy and this guy takes him in because he's hurt and he's being chased by what are these guys white supremacists they're a militia yeah what are they? yeah yeah uh, but they they all just look like dorks <laughs> I can hear your dog <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's outside crazy. Uh, I can't stop him either. Um, 
They're all dorks, right? All the villains are dorks. They look like a bunch of dorks. Which, you know, I gotta tell you what, I, I live in Salem and there's a lot of white supremacists here. And every single last one of them just looks like a fool. I, it just ridiculous. It's like, well, what I mean is like they're wearing, it's the late 90s, but they're wearing like dad jeans. They're wearing dad clothes. Uh, yeah. It's weird. <laughs> like, I thought that they would be more paramilitary or something. But you have this guy running around being all matrixy with his big old trench coat. <laughs> You, uh, you do have a scene that I think is really funny. It's cute. Uh, it's cute X day because he used this shot over and over again. And it's him standing on top of that weird sculpture with his two guns, John Woo style. Uh-huh. Uh, and the, the camera's pointed upwards. And he's swooshing his jacket and the guns around. And he loves that shot. I mean, it's a good shot. It is. I'll give it to him. But he just keeps on intercutting from that shot to the bad guys, to that shot to the bad guys, to that shot to the bad guys, over and over, of him swooshing around, and it's really funny. Yeah, I don't think he's a good filmmaker. No, well, I think that's why. are we? We don't know. You just gotta get behind the camera just to see, you know, just for fun. He had the money to use, so why not? Yeah. Well, I mean, I do. I've made stuff before, but uh, never can see because it got stolen no yeah the tape got stolen out of the well actually the camera got pawned and the tape was in it lame stupid hey so the other story i wanted to discuss real quickly before we go is um you know i think madman was starting to i think it seemed like he was kind of tired of doing the own stories with it like it's when he started doing like spinoffs and uh, crossovers, try to boost the popularity. Madman with Hellboy. Yeah, did he do it? With Rusty the Big Guy. Right. With Savage Dragon. Now, these are all independent ones. Uh, Is Superman the only yeah. mainstream character that he crossed over with? Nexus? Is that is Nexus? No, that's Steve um, Rude. That's independent. That's Dark Horse. That's indie. Okay, so, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Wow, that's kind of strange. I wonder why Superman, maybe because he's kind of a retro hokey character. In a way. Yep, probably. Yeah. And as, as the story unfolds, uh, how do you say his name? Mr. Mixoplitic, I think. <laughs> they have it in the comic. I don't have the comic in front of me, but they have the pronunciation in the comic book. Uh, Lois Lane actually says it. Uh, as if she'd know. <laughs> well, she's they ran into a bunch of reporter times. who. Yeah, so <laughs> over the history of Superman. No. At the time, I didn't have any problems with Superman. It was only after, um, and I, I think after Brian Singer got a hold of Superman, where I was like, I can't stand Superman. Yep, that's exactly the it. same point. I realized how boring he was. I, I go back and I'll grab trade paperbacks from the library and check them out, and I'm like, God, no, he just only really works when he's in relation to other superheroes. On his own, for the most part, he's really boring. Right. So, as I mentioned, well, I did say philosophy in Red Rocket 7, but Red Rocket 7 is also very Mormon. If you know what to look for, a lot of the sci-fi elements are actually Mormon elements. How do you pick up this? How do you know this? Because you said this about the Aquabats when we discussed that a couple months ago. How do you even pick up on this? (laughs) Yeah, I have a handful of Mormon pals over my life, in my lifetime, and... um, 
Well, that South Park episode about Mormonism. Nah, I've seen it. Oh, it's pretty good. It's classic. And by the end of it, when uh, when the end of times happens and whoever goes to heaven goes to heaven, uh, to make up for the bashing of the Mormons, as it would seem in that episode, they like, uh, well, who goes to heaven? Who's Who had it right? The Mormons. The Mormons had it right. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the joke. Um, so, but yeah, South Park actually does a, a very concise breakdown of both Scientology and Mormonism and other stuff. So, you learn a lot through media and being around Mormon people. And yeah, Mike Allred's Mormon, and he has a lot of Mormon ideas, but a lot of it is also philosophical and interesting. And one of them presented, and this is my favorite moment in this comic, is Madman and Superman. Madman's on a swing, Superman's like nearby. And they're just having a discussion because when the story starts, there's two science experiments and there are two alternate realities, Superman's and Madman's. And coincidentally, they happen at the same time and they split into amalgams of each other. Right. So Frank Einstein, Madman, is in this really buff body, but it's not exactly Superman's. And it doesn't exactly have all of Superman's powers. But his brain is there, and he looks a lot more like Superman. And the inverse is Superman in a madman-style body, sort of, with Frank's face and a cape and a weird sort of outfit. And then they have to come back together through science, and they do that. Their respective scientists help them merge back. And then they're all together. And Superman and Madman have a conversation and Madman says, do you believe in God? And Superman's like, I've seen so much weird stuff in my life that I would be crazy not to. And I thought that was kind of ballsy. Uh-huh. Uh, because, like, it, maybe this isn't canon, you know, because it's a crossover with another comic book company. But what if this was canon for the Superman people? Comic book Fans are notoriously anti-God, like they're atheists. Really, they're, I don't. This is the first I've ever heard that. He, I well, okay. At least right now, in when what I'm experiencing in in pop culture, uh-huh. there's a lot of science first, and God doesn't fit into science. Huh. So, but then, but then there's a, the, the irony is that they really are worshiping comics. And the lore that comics are. Comics are now our um, myths and legends. So Superman is a version of Hercules, you know what I mean? Right. Well, it's funny, I was watching, I was watching Just... Avengers the other day, and I didn't remember that there was a scene where he first meets Thor, Captain America first meets Thor, and they're like, who was that guy? Yeah. And they said, he's a god, and he goes, ah, there's only, or he's one of the gods. And he goes, ma'am, I only know one god, and he doesn't look like that. Yeah. Right? So so there's that's a little like archaic old nod to the old way, the old people, because he's from the forties, you know? Uh-huh. So I thought that it was rather interesting and then I, I know knowing that he's a Mormon, it's gonna work in a little bit of interesting 
perhaps controversial notions and that Superman would admit that he believes in God. Well, it's also interesting because they're always referring to, especially Lex Luthor, referring to Superman as a god. But old school Superman, right? Or is it the current? I don't know. That's or, weird. It's like, like when I say when it when it's when Superman got dark. Yeah, well, it's like I mean? pre-crisis. Uh, Superman is the one that seems like Madman's playing with. Hmm. So that's just the interesting part because it tickles my brain. I'm a philosophical guy sometimes, so it messes around with my brain and, and it makes me think. So that's why I like that. Yeah. Uh, but the science experiment going awry is all because Mr. Mixel puts it. Which I was like, okay, the, the loophole in this is that it was Mr. Mixel puts it all along. They didn't even need to do the science. Stuff. Right. It does seem like that was a little bit. They just needed to wait. <laughs> <laughs> just wait. He'll show up because yeah. he'll get bored. <laughs> I, uh, put everybody back together. It's funny, Mr. Mixelplitic always seems to show up in the TV shows and cartoons, but he's not really that well-known in the comics. He's kind of died off, because he seems like he's from that pre-crisis cheesy era. I watched... Oh, of course he is. I watched an episode of that 80s TV show, you know, that syndicated crappy one they shot in Florida, and Michael J. Pollard plays a full-size Mixel, Mr. Mixelplitic, and I was just... <laughs> I was like, what? Okay, I know the special effects weren't that good, but he... Is Michael what? J. Pollard on something all the time? Is that what's, go what's going yeah, on? Yeah, probably. Okay. I don't know what the deal is. Maybe he's done a lot of acid, and it's just Friday that's brain. the way he is now. Yeah. But that seems to be the way he acts. But his every... trippy behavior, I was like, because I, I had watched the episode right after I'd read the Hullabaloo comic, and I was like, that trippy behavior would have been more fit in this trippy, because Mike Allred has some, like, 60s and 70s, like, um, oh, what's the guy's name? Who yeah. was Who's going to do Dune? Who was the director I was going to be uh, doing in the 70s? Uh, oh, like that, Jodorowsky. Yeah, that trippy, uh, acid-dropped kind of... Uh, very visual, but in a different way. I can't explain it. It's... it's um, God damn it, I can't think of the words. Um, what uh, psychedelic. Thank you. Psychedelic. Okay, it was a really common word. I knew it started with a P. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no, he's definitely psychedelic. That's part of the mod culture yeah. as well. Um I mentioned his music, um, and I don't like the album The Gear, Son of Red Rocket 7. Uh -huh. um, I don't like I used to have it. I don't know what happened to it. I can't imagine really getting rid of it because it's kind of an artifact, but I don't have it anymore. Um, but really great album art. The music on it's not very good. Um, but it's all on Spotify right now. And if you check out their later stuff, it's as if that's the stuff that was supposed to be released in, in the first place, mm -hmm. is the later stuff. The other stuff seems like bad demos. Okay. Yeah, I just, uh, it feels like, yeah, like early 90s, or sorry, mid-90s, you know, just generic alt-rock, you know, not really saying anything. I, I, I thought maybe that was his only album. Mm -hmm. There's three. Okay. It's got three albums. I mean, I'm not one to really slam too much because I have some really dorky music out there too, you know. Yeah, one album. You gonna make another one? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> Maybe. I don't I'm know. Probably not. Yeah. Um, 
Alright, so I think that's pretty much the end of this episode. Check us out on Facebook under uh, Retro Rocket Entertainment and check out your podcast. Well, check out your art, Jimetsko.com. How do you spell it again? G I M E T Z C O. I had him do it because I always <laughs> flip the C and the Z. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, just, just to round it out, I like both of these things. They're cute, they're dorky. In a good kind of way. One of them is a little too heavy on the music history. And eventually, they're all pretty good. I, I wonder course, if... I like this version of Superman yeah, more than a lot of But do you think Superman. Shazam would have worked better than Superman? Hmm. Maybe. I feel like his aw shucks I, Iconically, iconically, no. Yeah. Well, it's not going to sell anywhere back. nearly as much. Right. So, yeah, that... Uh, but yeah check these out I like them alright everybody um, have a good night good night Ladies and gentlemen, the Atari Corporation is proud to uh, 
introduce to you our newest spokespeople, Robert Diggs, commonly known as the RZA, being accompanied by Mr. Jeffrey Hey everybody, welcome to Stumbling Towards Adulthood. I have no idea who does that song. Have you heard that before? I've never heard that before in my life. <laughs> and it said the RZA, so it's a legit song, but I don't know what the hell. i got to see who made this song, but it's great. Um, hey uh, everybody, I'm Michael. On the other side is Tony. Sorry, it's been a while since we've done an episode. Hey, how have you been? Hey, not too bad, you know. Trying to keep on, keep it on. Yeah, winter's coming. Winter's coming. Um... So, of course, we'll have another Christmas episode. Not Christmas episode, but I think we'll have, like, a winter wonder hell kind of episode where we discuss, like, snow disasters and crazy, like, snowball sledding incidents, if we have any. Um, oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. I'm starting to think of what else we can do on this show. It's clearly turned into kind of a pop culture show, but we'll dive back into stuff that's not strictly connected to pop culture. But it would be kind of fun to, like, revisit some of the movies or TV shows that had to do with high school or college. Um, I could talk about PCU for an hour. Oh yeah, that that was a fun one. I I, th- I think that was that was a little underrated. I don't know, maybe it's because a lot of people had a lot of hate for uh, Jeremy Tune. I thought David Spade was brilliant in that. Not to jump off topic too far, but yeah. Yeah, that one that 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 was that was one of my favorites too. Yeah, and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That's an episode alone too. So I, I don't know if that's the direction we'll go, or we'll kind of like bounce around with it. Um, but. You know, uh, we do have another episode we're going to do about dating disasters. So it's not all going to be pop culture related, but it is going to have to be. The point of the show is stuff that's related to, like, our middle school, high school, college years, you know, our youth, whatever. This one is a little bit prior to that, but it had ramifications through the rest of our years, is Atari. I cannot believe the Atari is as old as I am. And I don't know if that makes the Atari seem geriatric or I seem geriatric. (laughs) Yeah, a little of both. And like when I think, like, crap, wow, it's that, it's that old, and crap, I'm that old. Yeah. You know, like, damn, it makes yeah, it makes you uh, make, makes you reflect. It's if you think about the systems before this, it was just like Pong, and that was it. Like other companies making their own version of Pong. Atari is the first time that you could take home console games, you know, on cartridge and pop them in. And sometimes you get a game from a movie you knew. Uh, be from an arcade game that you pumped quarters in. Of course, it never looked anywhere nearly as good. It was almost always a letdown. Yeah, even like a basic arcade game, like a Space Invaders in the arcade, the Atari version just wasn't as good. It just wasn't as good as a cabinet game in an arcade. But the fact that you could play it at home was amazing. Like, oh my god. It's like, you know what I mean? I don't have to go to an arcade and pump, pump like, you know, $5 worth of quarters to keep playing, you know, so I get my high score, so I have, like, you know... My little claim to fame, you know, on the uh, on Jim's Pizza's arcade <laughs> in the corner there, you know, or what have you, in your local Seven Eleven or deli or whatever, you know. I I remember my arcade years are mostly geared towards the Nintendo years and after, but I do remember there was one across from my elementary school. Fucking can't remember the name of it, but um, Star Wars arcade was my jam. Um, I love playing Pac-Man. I still think Pac-Man is the greatest video game of all time. That Star Wars game was my obsession. 
Yeah, that one was really cool. I, I, I remember that. They had like a really big cabinet and one that local arcade. There was a couple different versions of it, but that one was really that one was really cool. Most of the space games were so you know what I mean were were pretty good. Sports games um, back then in the early '80s and then on Atari didn't transfer too well. You know what I mean? No, but no, no. Things like with, with space, like your asteroids. Um, Star Wars was awesome. That was a really good one. I remember there was a game, uh, the local pizza joint, Tony and Joe's Pizza Joint in my neighborhood, called Space Harrier. I thought that one was. That's a, yeah, that's a good one. I remember that one. Um, the one that drove me nuts was Dragon's Lair. Now, that's not an Atari game, but that is of that era. Dragon's Lair, I could not figure out for yeah. the life of me. And then I played it again as an adult. Guess what? I still can't figure it the fucking out. <laughs> Terrible at it. <laughs> it's really just timing. You, know, you just got to you know, make, make your timing really well. It's, really, it's just like subtle, quick movement You know, when the thing lights up. Yeah, Star Wars, I think, right. was the first first-person shooter. I might be wrong, but it's one of those where it was from the perspective of you flying in and had those Vectrex uh, special effects, like the way it was in um, Tempest, you know, the, the new design of video games. And it was great, but then you went home, and, and you'd have video games there for you. But, of course, you had, like, combat. Um, and then, you know, like, uh, Missile Command was great because it was very simple, blocky. Same thing for Space Invaders. Something was really, really right. lost when they put Pac-Man on the home console. Well, also when they with Star Wars for for Atari versus the one that's in the arcade, it was not not nearly as good. No, no, not didn't totally have the same technology. Kind of, yeah, didn't have the same kind of Tron-looking graphics. You know what was a pretty good game? I, a couple years later, the Zaxxon when it was still on uh, Atari was pretty good. That that, that, was... that one had a pretty good. Yeah, that was an excellent transfer. I remember there was Empire Strikes Back. And you showed me some pictures of video games that I didn't even know existed that were based on movies. Like, my jaw is on the floor that there was Escape from yeah. New York. Escape from fucking New York Maybe. I didn't hear about till now. I didn't See, I'm not wondering if these were, like, if these were legitimate or if somebody just, like, made those. But then I did check some of these to see if there was, like, video gameplay. And some of them there is. Like, Crawl was, was a real one. Tron was a real one, of course. Um, the last Starfighter looked was actually looked pretty pretty cool. I saw a YouTube video of it, and the graphics were really good. Look looked, looked really 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 well done. I didn't see I didn't see any gameplay for Escape from New York, so I'm wondering the legitimacy of that. Yeah. But I saw I, I saw Gremlins. Um, Superman was garbage, but I did see Superman. Fuck, PT, I, play, I own Superman. That was shit. Spider Man was much better. <laughs> uh, Gremlins didn't look too bad. I mean, I never actually played. I never actually played any of these. But yeah, Kroll looked terrible. Um, the Gremlins looked okay. Last Starfighter looked amazing. From uh, ET, famous for being one of the worst games ever Jesus made. Jesus Christ! And of course, so, most of them got it used. We none of us really bought it in stores yeah. with the instructions and the books. So you didn't know how to play it, and so therefore you got this cartridge yeah. you probably picked up at a garage sale for a buck. And um, you know, you're just like, "What the fuck am I doing here? I don't understand any of this. I quit." <laughs> I think the only ones I ever actually owned and knew were like Pitfall, I think Frogger, um, I had Galaga, Space Invaders, and Centipede. Like some, like, like some of like the classics. Because I think they, were, they, they tended to be cheaper. Now here's and the weird I think thing. maybe I had Joust. Joust, too, I, Joust was a hard one, and I never looked the same. I played the arcade version a few times, and that was great. What's the, is it Moon Buggy? Moon Patrol? A Moon Patrol, yeah. The, um... I had that, but I bought my Atari system at a garage sale, oddly enough, after I had owned the Nintendo. Uh, the Nintendo was way too expensive for me at the time because the cartridges were like $30, $40, and we were broke. I had the system, and I had like three games, yeah. and then you just got sick of it. So I sold it at a garage sale, and I bought an Atari at somebody's garage sale for like 20 bucks. came with uh, 15 or 16 games, and then I would just go around picking them up, and I had a huge collection, 
finally selling it sometime in, um, I want to say like 2002, and I sold it to some dude in Canada for a couple hundred bucks. That's amazing, because they only average, like, the average cost of those are like 40 to $50, maybe 30 bucks. Even in good condition, they're not worth a lot. You know, no. It's not, not even that, just like, there's a few, like, limited edition, like, models, I think they can fetch upwards of seventy dollars, but I mean, yeah, you're really not gonna, you know, depending on where you live, and it's hard for you to get them. But now these days, Amazon and eBay, it's pretty. Oh, well, plus we have the flashback editions now. You know, those are being reissued every single year with new modifications. And I think in people's mind, when they think of Atari, they don't think of actual games made by Atari that are on those consoles. They're thinking of the ones that were from other companies. You know, licensed ones. And when they get this flashback edition, they're like, yeah. oh, it's not what I thought it would be. Yeah, I think people just have, like, a hazier recollection. Like, they'll have, like, Intellivision and Coleco, ColecoVision. It's all mixed together. You know what I mean? They just thought, oh, that was all on Atari. It probably wasn't. There was, you know what I mean? And then there was, like, later models. Maybe, like, you see the Atari 2600 with, like, some of the newer updated versions before. It just, like, kind of went away for a while, you know? Did you ever meet anybody who had uh, another game system? Yeah. Like, you're just thrown off, like, what the hell is this thing? Oh, it's a Coleco. What the fuck is a Coleco? <laughs> yeah, a buddy of mine had a Coleco. Another buddy of mine had an Intellivision. I'm like, what are these things? <laughs> these are crazy. I, I mean, left handed. They were better, I guess, yeah. but they weren't that, that practical. They didn't have a lot of games. Well, you know? the Intellivision had that weird ass control with, like, yeah. the dial on it. Like, you'd call somebody for help with the video game. I don't know what the, fo the point of the, the yeah. number pad was. Had like a had a dial push button, like yeah, push that number pad. Like, what is this a phone? What what is this thing? Yeah, totally. The uh, the Atari is difficult for me because I'm left-handed. So the controllers were always really frustrating, you know, because you know I have to hold my right hand, but I'm not right-handed, and I have to hit that button, and I find myself constantly like switching hands, especially if I'm playing something that's like a fast shooter. And it was such a struggle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I never thought about that. I think maybe maybe you could hold it upside down. Maybe they switch to the other side. Of course, the wire would kind of be a little bit in the way, but maybe that's the way to get around of it. Uh, but yeah, I, I never, you know, me being already, I never thought about that. Yeah, it'd be nice if they had a button on each side. Just how hard was that? Come on. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's weird. Like, I mean, I remember like there being a few games that I remember that I thought were really cool. Like, I know Kung Fu Master was one of my favorites. Pitfall. Uh, you know, uh, Excite Bike was cool. That but, was uh, a lot of sports games were just garbage. Uh, I don't. I. I. It was. It was a bike. It was. It was like there was Excite Bike like that. It was like something like that with the hills. I, I remember. It might not have been been that exact name. There was some, something like. Maybe I'm confused. I could have swore there was a, a a game similar to that. I would not be surprised. You know, I when mean, Atari I mean, got, Nintendo had. Um, when Atari got it, to the end. I feel like they Nintendo, probably I, were. I, I sorry, we're talking at the same time. Oh, no worries. Go ahead. I mean, I feel like there were some titles that that kind of carried over, like the Mario Brothers. You know what I mean, et cetera. I don't know. Nintendo was pretty yeah, proprietorial with their stuff. I just that carried can't... over from from Atari. Yeah, I can't imagine they probably had a tight license on all their stuff. But before they launched Nintendo, I bet you they did license some stuff. I know for a fact Donkey Kong was on the Atari. Yeah, no, for sure. Donkey Kong was um, Mario Brothers, the original version. Um, yeah, I remember, uh, I'm trying to think, what are some of the other ones? I'm scratching my brain here. Here's, I got Eric a list. was a cool one, I remember that one. Yeah, I got a list here of the most famous Atari games, and some look so fucking terrible. Um, of course, Defender being one of the greats. Berserk was a pain in the ass. Oh, yeah. Yep. Jungle Hunt, which I confused for Pitfall Dig Dug. a lot. Dig Dug was great. Yeah, they're, they're both pretty similar. Yeah, I, I remember 
Yeah, Pitfall was definitely one of my favorites. Uh, Pole Position was kind of cool. What are some of the other ones? Asteroids. Yeah. A classic. Arcade and console classic. Well, on the Gallo, console, it looked sure. like giant Sherbert just flying at you. <laughs> yeah, it's weird because, like, even back then, you knew it kind of looked like crap. I mean, especially when it was, like, uh, compared to, like, like, if there was a movie game or if there was, like, even a sports game, you know it doesn't look like, you know, sports on TV or whatever. And you know, like, you knew eventually someday they're going to make it look, like, almost exactly like. So you knew it was kind of garbage, but it was just because you could play it at home. It was just, you know, amazing. Yeah, Indiana Jones was just a blob like, with a hat and a whip. <laughs> yeah, and you knew this was, like, this kind of sucks, but compared to, like, you know, a board game, this is pretty great, you know? But, uh, yeah, but like, but, like, nowadays, like, you know, ar- arcades are pretty much, I mean, they, they kind of have, like, um, a revival in, like, your Dave and Buster's and where your, uh, you know, your big owls and outside of Portland and some of those ones where they're, they're like, really amazing kind of um, virtual reality type of games. But, like, now, like, uh, home uh, consoles have closed the gap between, like, you know, now you still have to go to an arcade to play something really, really cool because, you know, your, you know, your Atari just wasn't able to match what they had, you know, your local arcade or your local pizza joint there'd be a couple of cabinets there and they're just like you know better than anything you could do like your spy hunters or what, what have you better than anything your atari offered you know yeah well it always looked different and the vid- difference between the games now in the arcades and home it seems to be heavy on the what you consider a peripheral like you would have a gun or you had to ride in it. it had something that wasn't easy to have in a home console um because uh That's the graphics look the same that's true, yeah. Like, you go to, you know, your modern arcades, they'll have, like, the, the guns and the steering wheels and things of that nature, which, yeah, you, it's really hard. I mean, I don't know, I guess it would be possible to replicate at home, but it just wouldn't be very practical. You know, you're spending a lot of money for one particular game. You know, it would make a lot of sense, but, yeah, yeah. true. I had a cousin who, um, her dad owned a video store, but also had arcade repair in the back. So her whole basement was lined with arcade machines that were repaired, but the people who owned them couldn't pay for the repair, so they would just keep them. And her whole basement was lined, and I was just like in awe. I said, like, "Oh my god! At any time you get to do, you get to just play these games. What the fuck?" Friend of mine, back in Montana, he had like a lot of disposable income. He, he bought like those golden TV games that each every bar. And so he's got one of those in the garage, and he's got like the ATV with a little console. I mean, with a little um, the cabinet, with a little stool, and the steering wheel. That's in his garage too. <laughs> I have no idea why he bought it. Just, just, just own it. He had too much money burning a hole in his pocket, I suppose. There are some games I don't understand. Why I play Golden Tee when they're usually at golf courses? I see it all the time at golf courses. You go to like the little club bar or whatever, and there's a Golden Tee there. Or the hunting games. I'm like, just go fucking hunt. What, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Dude, the last ten, last times I've been in a bar back in my hometown, like people like go nuts over it. Almost like it's darts or like it or something or like you know what I mean they're like people go they're going crazy with this gold tea and like and these aren't golfers these aren't guys who play golf or would go play golf but you know in this bar like oh and they're like get, they get heated over it I mean guys this is just a lame ass golf game you guys realize that right but yeah it's some it's, it's, it's a bar favorite for whatever reason yeah what was the game that you would say had the longest line like it was torture just to get to play um, back in the day Ooh, probably Mortal Kombat yeah, that it was, was always fun. Mortal Kombat or some yeah. sort of fighting game. But before that, it was um, yeah. there was this Star Trek game that was very similar to the Star Wars first-person shooter, 
and um, I could never get in it. We went to these this place. I don't know if you ever heard of them. They're called Holla Domes. It's a Holiday Inn, but it has like a big rec center in the middle of the hotel. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. I've never seen those. They, they're, I think there's only a few left, but they were a huge fad in the 60s. And, then, and we had one in Fort Wayne that was still existing. And basically, you have all the hotel rooms, but in the middle, you have a pool, a hot tub, an exercise area, and then you have like pool, like shooting pool, I mean, um, ping pong, and then a huge array of video games. And they had like 30 cabinets. And it's all in this one area. Now, the wisdom of putting video games so close to a pool is beyond me. But um, that's the way it used to be. But I guess people got sick of the racket or whatever reasoning they had, and they've kind of died off. Yeah, I mean, for for us, if it wasn't just like a, a plain arcade, it was like you know your local pizza pizza joint or whatever or Seven Eleven. But yeah, we're, uh, or you know, Chuck E. Cheese had like one or two of them. Now, if you go to a Chuck E. Cheese, it's like video game dominant. It's like there's there's no uh, like ball pits or mazes or any of that what? kind of junk used to be in the day. Lame. Yeah, it, it's. It really is. It's not not nearly as fun. It's like you know, it was fun. You have a like little you know optical courses and like you know slides and stuff and you know like uh, it was active. You know, you got you're more active now. So it's like it's almost 100 percent video games. You know what I mean? You think it's because of insurance? Probably. People are doing goofy crap in ball pits, putting like I've heard people putting like blades in there, pipes and needles, or also kids sometimes they throw up in there or pee in there. Like they'll have an accident, you know. So it's just, yeah, it's you know, you have to worry about infections. I don't know if just kids got grosser or whatever. I didn't think it was like never an issue when I was a kid. Yeah, so I don't like, remember no anybody taking a dump no on something. <laughs> yeah, no one was having accidents. No one was throwing up in there. I mean, I don't know, but time of the times. So yeah. Uh, real quickly, uh, another uh, handful of games that were popular in the Atari: Yars Revenge, which was torture for me to play on the home system; Centipede, which fucking ruled. That is my game. Yeah, I have that written down. I have Centipede and Cubert. That was another fun one. Oh. Big Doug, of course. Pac Man. Cubert looked like shit on the home console, and my depth perception on the home version it was so bad, I'd never tell which direction I was going. I was like, I can't, no, I, oh, I gotta die again. Yeah, it was kind of, even in the arcade, it's hard to like uh, convey the 3D, like there's 3D cubes, you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, at, at home, it was it was definitely, there was like no color, it was just like an orange blob. It, it, like, you know, they. Definitely didn't look as look as uh, as good. Same with Frogger, you know. I mean, uh, that's one of the ones I owned. But yeah, there's uh, there was an arcade version of Frogger, and like it just looked a little more realistic, but like the gameplay was essentially the same. Yeah, you know? there's a lot of ripoffs of all of these games. Atari. The problem with Atari is that they didn't do quality control the way Nintendo did. Though I could argue there's a lot of shit Nintendo games. But Atari would do like Pac-Man, and then twelve other companies that same year would do their own version of Pac-Man, and when you go yeah, to the store, you look and you're like, "Well, do I pay five bucks for this or do I pay thirty bucks for that?" They look like the same fucking thing. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of those, like those grid games where like there's somebody chasing you and you gotta go through this mid, this maze kind of grid. It's almost exactly the same. You might not be picking up dots and go waka 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 every time, but it's the same kind of strategy. It's really strange. There's like so many games that are so similar. The uh, pole position, I think, is the first time I'd ever seen like. Uh, not really first person, but you're right there. It's almost like a third person racing game. And I can't believe that it was so popular yeah. that it launched a cartoon for two years. You look at it now, you're like, and? I don't I don't get it. 
well, creating pole position was Grand Prix, which was kind of like crap. But pole position was a much better updated version of it. And, uh, yeah, it was like one of the better racing games that existed on Atari at the time. Because, you know, there was, wasn't a whole, whole lot of them. Because a lot of things were going from side to side. So you kind of had that almost, you know I mean? Yeah, it's almost like you know, it's as close as you could feel to like racing a car from the home that existed at the time. So I understand why it was so popular. Yeah, you look back now, and they were just doing the best they could with, I think, two-bit cartridges. You know, that's such little information now. You know, you're talking, what are we on now? 256? Something like that? Or I think we're even beyond that. (laughs) Something like that. Yeah, it's like back then you had, like, some of the top game programmers in Silicon Valley making those games, and that was, like, high tech. Now people people make them from their home as a hobby. You know, and when I see people make their own versions of new movies, like uh, somebody made like an Atari version of um, Cloverfield, and all these other like like new school games because it's so easy for them to make. But back then, it's like the best and the brightest were cranking those out in Silicon Valley back in the day, and uh, yeah, nowadays it's <laughs> for like a, a normal programmer, it's like child's play. Yeah, well, you can get flash animation, which apparently is dying off, and people can just design these like Nintendo-looking platformers, but. It's weird that there's so much popularity for the 2600 that they're still making homebrew. Like, you can order these new yeah. games made for the Atari. It's so bizarre. Yep. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I, that was one of the things I saw, too. It said homebrew, and there's, like, these, these new versions of, like, uh, of Atari 2600-esque games that, uh, that people can still play. Like, you know, just, just pure, pure nostalgia, I guess. I mean, it seems like, uh, I don't know, it seems kind of like a waste of money to me, but, you know, these people dig it. Some people hold on. I held on to mine for a really long time. I still remember fall of 98, my roommate Brian staying up. I think he started around 9 p.m., and then I woke up the next day to go to class at 8 p.m. or 8 a.m., and he was still playing Pac-Man trying to set the world's record. And I was like, um, how are you going to prove this? You don't even own a camera. He was like, son of a bitch! You can't just write it down and tell people? I go, no, it does not work that way. What are you thinking? Um, have you ever seen any of those uh, documentaries, King of Kong? Oh my Which god, that's the, most, docu- that's the best documentary ever made. I love it. That's <laughs> great. There's another one too that was on Netflix about this guy who was trying to like break the record on the snake. And then there was like, I don't, you know what I mean? People still do it to this day of like, you know, they'll play all night, have a video of it. Somehow it has to be alive. They do like marathons on it. It's just, it's crazy. Can I tell you that I was in a really bad place when I was watching King of Kong? And I saw that this one guy retired like at 30 and all he does is play video games all day long. And I was like, that's the best life ever. Not realizing the movie's actually <laughs> mocking that he did that. I'm like, I want to live that life. I want these to be my friends. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, you, you know, yeah, you're trying to figure out, like, is that, is, that, is that a great life or a terrible life? I don't know. I guess it depends on, you know, what, you know, what kind of mood you're in at the time when you're watching it. I'm looking at some of these home console systems we haven't discussed. Uh, I do not remember the Magnavox Odyssey. I don't remember the Bally Astrocade. That was three hundred dollars. The Fairchild hey, Channel there, F. What the hell is this stuff? There was a Sears system too that I heard that, that, that there was like a, a Sears only system. Maybe, but I'd never heard of that. They made like Sears made their own game system. Yeah, I saw, I saw one thing that was available for Atari and yeah. Sears. Like, yeah, I saw that on the um, what is it Megaforce or something like that. That says mm. Sears or Atari console. I didn't know that existed. Yeah, I'm like, I didn't know Sears had their own system. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing here that says it. Wow. Yeah, I was only aware of three. I was aware of ColecoVision, Intellivision, and Atari. Those are the only ones that, because you're, you're kind of only aware of what you know a lot of kids have. You know what I mean? But there's no, like, 
internet back then to find out what other exists. You know what I mean? So what's available in your town and what your friends have, that's what you think. That's all you think that exists. Yeah. You know? Well, I remember seeing that little one that was in um, Gremlins. The little Mogwai is playing, like, look like Donkey Kong, but like a little tiny version of Donkey Kong. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. Like a hand. Yeah, well, see, the thing is, that was, when, when, when did that come out? Like, 85, 86? Uh, 84. So, I, 84, okay. Well, I thought it was later than that. I think, I think that the, the technology, you know, kind of um, improved. I mean, the way they do the PS, the PlayStations, and what, whatnot. So they got, they got smaller and a little more sleek. But I don't, yeah, I remember seeing that in the movie. I don't remember seeing that on the market anywhere. Because I, I, you know, I definitely wasn't buying the latest and the greatest as soon as it came out because, you know, you can mercy whatever your parents can afford, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I saw, or maybe it was you that was telling me that they're starting to revive those, and I, I just can't see the – it's just a novelty. It's not. It can't be something that people really want to play on a regular basis. Yeah, it just doesn't hold up. It's fun to play one, once in a while, but, yeah, I mean, like, back then, if that's all you have, that's all you're going to play, but now you're, you know, you're you're still for choice. There's so many. You can play better games on your cell phone. You know? Yeah, oh, definitely. <laughs> um, here's the weird thing: is I don't even remember this happening, and I think most people didn't remember this happening. So Atari, the 2600, you know, the the, the classic wood panel, because everything around this time for some reason was fucking looking like a station wagon. Um, there was a 5200 <laughs> launched sure. in '82. I never even heard of it until like you know many many years later. Yeah, me neither. I mean, because I just. Same with you, the same old Garden Variety 2600, the only one I was aware of. And then there was like, I, I'm reading there's like Atari XLs and these like up, updated versions. I'm like, really? I was only aware of the one. And yeah, the 52 looks like a Coleco. The, the controller is shit. It has those little dial pads on it. Um, it was an 8-bit console years before Nintendo put out their console, and yet it was a huge flop. So you go from 30 million dollars or 30 million consoles to a million total. And, and they discontinued it after a year and a half. That's fucking crazy. That is crazy. Yeah, I guess maybe like so like it was just a marketing department fail, I suppose. Yeah, because I, I had never seen it. Yeah, and I know there was a 7800, but I'm curious how many of that even sold. They're probably like 12. No, three and a half. Wow, I did not know that. Wow. It was cheap, too. Yeah, I mean, like at, for me, after 2600, the popularity kind of waned. I stopped playing it more and more. I didn't do. I didn't buy anything else until like, till the NES came out. And that's the last, you know. So I didn't get any updated versions of Atari. It just didn't seem like a practical investment. You know, no, it just seemed like a lot of the stuff that they were doing was a big mistake. Like the Lynx. The Lynx was a bulky, stupid-looking device that had oh, shitty I graphics. That. I remember that. There was yeah. the Jaguar, which is a fucking line of shit. They said, oh, 64, meg- uh, 64 megabytes and like – or not 64 bits, sorry. And it turns yeah. out it was just like actually 32, and they're trying to sell it to something better. And they had the worst games, just the shittiest games. Yeah, I don't. I, don't, I do remember the links. Don't remember the Jaguar, but I, I remember that being expensive. Like I only saw it like in one of the, like those game specialty stores, like your uh, electronics boutique or your Babbage's or whatever, like those specialty video game stores. And it was just way too expensive. I'm like, that's not really, not really cost effective for me. I, you know, if I buy it, I could maybe have one game to play for the for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, I always get a, a console way after the fact. I got an Xbox like five years after it came out. I, I, I my 360 has been holding up for now for years, and I bought that off of John. Um, and I think that's the last console I'm ever going to get because I'm actually kind of interested in these retro consoles or the Raspberry Pi, which is a home built system where you can just upload all of the old ROMs and have emulators play these games. Why do I pay all this money for games that like make me sick? I want to play the old school stuff. 
I saw those. It looked super cool. Like, so it has, like, because I have one of the little mini cabinet um, arcade games, the Pac-Man one. Yeah. And then I saw the Raspberry Pi one has a little uh, USB connector. You can just, yeah, you can just plug those and download all those little, like, arcade quality games. A little tiny, um, little tiny arcade cabinet. It looks, looks super cool. Which brings me over to one of our sponsors, a, uh, over at Above the Airways, which is a podcast that we're kind of, they do some of our shows, we do some of their shows. Um, Steve is a tech whiz, and he builds these little tiny Raspberry Pi consoles that look like a Nintendo, like the classic NES system, and uh, he uploads it with whatever you want. He's got all the Super Nintendo, the Nintendos, all those ROMs. Um, and you can get it for pretty cheap. Depends on how much you want added on. If you want Wi-Fi added on, if you want uh, larger uh, SD card controllers, throw in certain types of controllers. That varies, but usually around 80 to 100 for your most basic model, and then it goes up to like 150 or something like that. But I, I, I want to get one. But right now, money's a little tight. But man, I would love to play one. That does sound cool. Yeah, as soon as you get one, like, like uh, let me know how it is. If I ever can scrape cynical together, maybe I'll invest in one too. Yeah. Um, so I think that brings us to the end of this episode, shorter than usual. But we have uh, we've been kind of slow in getting the episodes out. We got the perfect opportunity to do two short episodes. So hey, why not? Um, so everybody, check us out on Facebook under Retro Rocket Entertainment. And Tony, thank you for another great episode. My pleasure as always, sir. All right, we have come to the end, my friend, and you know what that means. <laughs>